We're continuing our series of Traffic Club podcasts uh, for the Traffic Club of Chicago. And today we're engaged with Ken Erickson. Ken has been with Informa for the longest time, but now is it is being acquired by IHS Market. Uh, Ken is the Vice President Advisory and Client Develop or Client Advisory and Development at uh, Informa, along with uh, the Energy and Transportation Group. Um, Ken, that's a little bit about what I can say in terms of your background, but there is much uh, that we can talk about just in terms of your history and involvement, um, uh, things like policy, things like transportation, uh, the global markets of grain. Um, why don't you bring us up to speed uh, just in giving us some background as to your company, where you are, how you're being um, involved in a marketplace that really does impact transportation markedly. Well, thanks a lot, Dennis. Appreciate being on this uh, podcast with the Traffic Club of Chicago, and this is a real exciting venue. Uh, been with uh, Informa or IHS Market now uh, since really 2001, and in my roles here, I've headed up our uh, transportation analytics and then expanded it into transportation industrial energy. And then we had some uh, rearrangement, if you will, bringing our offering to our clients that uh, we communicate with on a daily basis globally, about 320-some clients. Uh, in one way or another, we brought our, our material to a platform, and now we've kind of reconfigured ourselves where now I have formed our client advisory development team where I spent a uh, lead our team of uh, working with our clients on price risk management, uh, looking at what's going on in the marketplaces, in the marketplace, what are some of the factors impacting the fundamental view? As we look at the world, it's got to balance out on the flow of commodities where supply, whether that's uh, beginning stocks and production, have got to balance out with what the demand is and, and then the great differences, the carrying stocks going over from one year to the next. And if you're in a deficit country, you're constantly having to buy from somebody else. It's just that comparative advantage of trade. And we work with our clients on an ongoing basis because if you're in a position of having more than enough, you're in a position to uh, have a residual amount to go into the global marketplace. But as we work with people in the marketplace, uh, the other part I still head up is our energy and transportation and, and have retained that. And we remind our clients that, uh, and, and we've been doing this for 43 years now, of working with clients in price risk management uh, on a fundamental supply and demand look. Uh, here from Memphis, Tennessee, understanding that you're not really trading a commodity such as corn, soybeans, uh, beef, or uh, uh, energy products such as crude oil. You're really trading the freight around that. And whether it's the rolling or floating assets that we're looking at, but it's also over that infrastructure by which those assets roll or float over that we've got to look at too. Because transportation, on one hand, can be very short-run in nature. Uh, the problem is it's got to work with uh, infrastructure that's long-term in nature. And so we're having to bridge that gap, if you will, to communicate with our clients on an ongoing basis of just how important transportation and infrastructure is. And honestly, uh, those in the transportation logistics uh, groups within their companies, uh, they're oftentimes the last ones to get talked to 
but they're always the first ones that get blamed when something doesn't go right. And in the end, when we're talking about a snow event or a ice event, flooding or whatever, uh, those are things that just don't, you just can't levitate over those. And so we're having to bring perspective with our client of what this means on a global basis, whether it's infrastructure investment in uh, grain storage or cold storage or the cold chain supply logistics. Uh, there's, there's a number of ways that we work with our clients. And, and in a greater context of our business, we have a, in the IEG Vantage Group that uh, I work and represent, uh, we have we cover the whole supply chain of all these different commodities in a very channelized approach, and, and it's a real exciting area to be in. And now, as we're part of IHS Market, it's really exciting to work with groups like the Journal of Commerce, the Maritime and Trade Group, whether it's with the Peers Data, the Global Trade Atlas, vessel tracking, and really trying to bring real-time understanding of what's taking place in the markets taking data, transforming it information, whether it goes into our balance tables live, so to speak, and then we're able to turn that into knowledgeable information for our clients who are really trying to make a strategic uh, decision or outcome for their businesses. Uh, at the end of the day, like all of us, be profitable and, and to maintain that going forward for your shareholders. So it's really exciting for us to work with our clients and we've got a great team of analysts here, really quite frankly around the world, uh, with research uh, analysts in Chicago to uh, Washington D.C. to London to China and many point uh, here in Memphis and Canada and many points in between, so it's uh, really exciting to come to work and be around some smart people and, and to be able to work with them and work with uh, smart clients and uh, clients with we've got a lot of risk on the table that uh, we get to work with every day. You know, you suggest um, global, and the, one of the last countries you just mentioned was China. I know you were there uh, recently. Uh, the fact is, is that we're dealing with um, communist countries. Uh, I know Russia in the past, China is big uh, currently, um, and we've got some real challenges. Is there anything we should know in terms of current market conditions before we get to the uh, infrastructure of uh, of the United States and how we're moving uh, stuff here. Um, help help me understand uh, about the free market uh, challenges that you face on a regular basis and how you then convey that to your customers. Yeah, I think a good question. And uh, yeah, I just was returned from Beijing here a couple of weeks ago uh, in the buildup to their 70th anniversary as a really a communist uh, regime, the longest surviving communist regime, quite frankly. And uh, it's no easy feat as we look at communist history, uh, uh, political systems. But in China, it's a very paranoid uh, sort of environment uh, just by the number of cameras that are up everywhere in China. Every time I go back to China, there just seems to be more cameras and listening devices, facial recognition, voice recognition, and other technologies that are monitoring. And not only that, the control of the communication of what its citizens see and what the world thinks their citizens are seeing. There is a big disconnect. And, and I think just this week, what we have two things, one that the Chinese are gonna be in the United States uh, continuing the negotiations with the, the United States on the trade disputes that we have. And they're very significant issues. And quite frankly, they're issues that I think both sides of uh, the US political spectrum, if you will, have come to agreement on and have not argued too vehemently over 
uh, of why it's important for us to have these going forward. It's been long overdue, and, and the U.S. farmers, quite frankly, and even some of our energy sector have been paying a price and sacrificing for some of these challenges with the trade negotiations that really started in April 2018. And, and where we are today and this week, the NBA is being criticized uh, because of one a general manager from the Houston Rockets sent a tweet out cr uh, really supporting the protesters in Hong Kong uh, for, them, for them being able to stand up for their rights. But China, the mainland, did not like that and in the end called for uh, an apology, uh, a deletion of that tweet as if no one in China, no one in China would see that tweet, supposedly. But yet in China overnight here, uh, when the, the, chair, the uh, commissioner of NBA uh, said, look, we're going to support our uh, general manager to have freedom of thought. And China essentially came out overnight and says, well, we don't think freedom of thought is a good thing to have. And so they basically said, we're not going to show preseason games. We're going to purge our systems of Houston Rockets. You cannot find it anywhere in the social media in China. So very different structures. And it, it, I think it's very emblematic of where it's them versus us and really them versus the Western world where you don't have that. Because when I left China, I went to Japan and everything was back again. I had all the social media. I had full internet. I could communicate freely and openly. And you just see a big difference when you go to China. And look, that's their determination and that's their regime. But that puts us in a very interesting bind with these negotiations. And for us here in the United States, we think about commodities that uh, are available to be moved and, and that they would historically move, say, to China. Now, all of a sudden, they haven't. That has caused a ripple effect in our economy and really to our transportation uh, networks that have had to readjust, so to speak, to that. But at the same time in China, you do have the other major event taking place, which is the African swine fever, which is really imp impacting its hog population. And China is a very large pork consuming country. And their hog population totals about three quarters of a billion pigs uh, that, uh, on an annual basis. And you cannot take all the pigs in the rest of the world and come close to that number. It's, it's a very, very large number. And there's reports of anywhere from 20, a 35% to 55% of their pigs have been killed because this disease, the African swine fever, is, has a 100% mortality rate on the pig. And if it comes into a region, they slaughter, they cull or slaughter all the pigs. They just kill them. And they don't use them for meat. But what happened is that uh, now there's a shortage of pork product in China. And they're really trying to recover from that. And that may have a longer-term impact on, say, soybean consumption uh, in the form of soybean meal in that country than what the trade deal might do. And that's, that's a double whammy right now hitting uh, especially U.S. farmers. Of course, U.S. farmers are being hit this year by late plantings that took place in the spring, late harvest now. And now they're having uh, smaller crops than what they thought otherwise. So we're in a very epic sort of situation on many fronts, uh, what's taking place here. So this China thing, very important that we go forward and that we get it right and, and that we move forward in a direction that it's not just about the United States here, quite frankly, it's really about a global situation and these negotiations that are taking place. Well, in this country, um, one of the things that we're very focused on uh, is our own infrastructure and, and, it's, and our impact on it. 
Um, how important as a, for instance, are inland waterways to U.S. agriculture and what's being moved and the volumes and from what locations and so forth? Um, help us to better understand if, if we're going to be able to move product, uh, whether it's more or less, um, uh, help me understand the systems that you're using to be able to share on a global scale. Yeah, and as we think about our infrastructure, you know, when you have an inadequate infrastructure, that could be, you know, leads to some sort of breakdown in the system. And certainly, uh, Illinois is, is very much focused on that this year and really the next three years with its waterway system as there's some major efforts to try to modernize or do some major rehabilitation of the system. And we can talk about that. But when you have an impediment to infrastructure, whether it is a waterway, it's a rail, it's, it's a, a highway, you just reduce your effective transportation capacity. When you do that, you need more uh, equipment to move the same volume, but that leads to higher freight rates. Higher freight late rates lead to higher cost of manufacturing. And for farmers, really, that leads to lower farmer income. And we like to say the farmers pay for freight both ways, that when there's a problem with freight, they get it in terms of lower basis and lower basis means they're just getting less cash for their crop and then what happens when you have lower income say for farmers or for businesses in general or for a manufacturer you've just lost your uh, level of global competitiveness and other participants come to the market to take advantage of that and so when we look at this here uh, and, and that's why transportation and really infrastructure is important and when we look at uh, uh, you know, agricultural exports of the United States, grain and soybean uh, exports in particular, 60 some percent of those volumes uh, move through the U.S. Center Gulf. So from, uh, you know, Baton Rouge, New Orleans uh, area out into the world and well over 95 percent of that export volume arrives by a, in a barge coming from uh, locking river areas uh, or a non-locking area. So it's it's very important we look at that, but coal has had been important, though coal has suffered uh, really because of low natural gas prices. Uh, and then chemical movements are very important that, you know, Chicago here uh, and Midway, they depend on during the winter months, dare I say it's coming, and it could come this week, right? There's a, a little blizzard that could show up in the Western uh, Corn Belt that you'd need that uh, magical solution to keep the planes uh, uh, from icing over and a lot of that chemical arrives by barge from the center gulf and if you don't have an adequate system those those, those impacts get to be very important immediately and that's where you see the global impact here in the united states when you've got problems it can hit home real fast and so we see that in a major way and we know from some work we've done that infrastructure is very important to the u.s economy and really to the u.s farmer how is the, this inland barge market structured? I mean, who owns and operates the infrastructure? Uh, how is the towboat and barge operators, how are they situated? Um, help me to better understand how we can use or utilize uh, the network that's currently available. Yeah, so there's probably about 12,000 miles of navigable waterways on the inland river system. There's about 200 and some uh, locks and dams Again, this is for the Mississippi River system in particular, since it really is what impacts um, uh, you know, really Illinois and Chicago. 
And, and from that, that's really owned by or operated by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which means then that they're responsible for the ongoing maintenance, the operations of the um, projects themselves. And those projects come in, in, in two forms. One, that you've got the locking structures and the dams, and those are really supporting uh, navigation, flooding, uh, and, and municipal water and recreation, among other things. But then there's the long-term aspects of the major rehabilitation that's got to come. But they also have to keep the, the channels by which the towboats and the tows of barges need to navigate through at the uh, project width, project depth, or draft, and, and make sure that it's an open channels across the system. And, and the Army Corps gets funding from two sources, one from the uh, federal treasury through an ongoing uh, budget, if you will, to the Army Corps. And that had been sliding or not growing or keeping up with the pace of uh, the maintenance and the requirements of the system over time. Though in recent years, Congress has been helping out a little bit because of uh, some special funding. There's been some uh, issues that they faced. But then on major rehab and construction, new construction, those that money really has to come from an uh, inland waterways trust fund. And, and the uh, industry, the barge operators, when they purchase fuel, they pay 29 cents a gallon uh, for uh, that goes, or 29 cents a gallon goes into a trust fund, and then the government matches that, the federal government, to pay for that major rehab and new construction. It's just that it's not keeping pace uh, when we see that. So, for example, right now there's 6.3 billion dollars worth of major rehab and new construction that needs to be done on the inland waterways, and and really if the if the government were really to put that into place and, and really fund it and get it uh, and finish those projects within 10 years, $6.3 billion could translate into uh, you know, a six-fold six increase in revenues to the economy. And certainly we'd see increased volumes move on the river system, much more jobs in the economy, expanded GDP, a contribution to GDP, expanded contribution to sales, if we're expanding and making an efficient system, and really it would help make the United States more competitive with regions like South America who are catching up. And every time there's a blip in our infrastructure, other competitors catch up with the United States and start to be as or more competitive than here. And it's really about where are we gonna go in the future? And our Congress really has to wake up to that and the elected officials. Because meanwhile, the barge operators, they own the towboats, they own the barges, or they lease the barges for those who are leasing them to them. And, and there's, say, there's 20-some thousand uh, barges in the river system, whether it's a liquid barge, covered with hopper barge, or an open barge. And there's some, uh, I think it's, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, 10,000 towboat units out there to move all this equipment around the system. There's billions of dollars of investment that barge owners and operators are having to make decisions on of where they want to invest, how much they want to invest, whether it's in new equipment, new engines, uh, better um, uh, safety features. But if this system's not going to be modernized, it puts them in a tough spot to say, where do I want to make the investment? Because meanwhile, we do have product to move to markets. We have an economy to support in the United States. And it's very challenging. We have a lot of uh, efforts around this because if we don't make investments, say we reduce our investment, um, we could see farmers losing market output of $58 billion 
But if we make the investment in the waterway system in particular, we could see a gain of $39 billion in their market value for their crops that they have. So we're talking almost a $100 billion shift just by a $6.3 billion increase uh, of taking care of what has largely uh, uh, outperformed itself. I mean, we're talking just not uh, stitches and band-aids. We're talking knee replacements, hip replacements on our navigation system. I mean, we're talking on the Illinois Waterway, those projects, those locks and dams are some 80 years and older. Let's just think that through. If you do no maintenance or no major rehab to your own house, what happens to that house over 80 years? Well, the, the, there's a lot of problems that we have, and we've got a lot of work to be done. But $6.3 billion in our big budget is pretty small when you look at the returns we get for that. You know, in uh, you all did, IHS Market prepared a uh, study for the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture and the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, there were some takeaways. Um, uh, what were those takeaways, and, and how is U.S. competitiveness being impacted that um, in, in terms of, well, I, I guess, what we need to do next? Yeah, you know, as we look at it, if we just keep the status quo out, say, to 2045, and, and we just do some basic routine maintenance, say, uh, uh, over that time, we'll have employment of 395,000 jobs, a contribution to gross domestic product of 185 billion in sales output that we'd contribute to that about 354 billion. But if we do nothing and we uh, actually decrease the amount of investment, not to the full breaking point, but just you know, it just takes longer to move through the system, takes longer to go through the locks and and such. You're going to see employment drop 18 percent, uh, contribution to GDP fall 38 percent. And, and contribution to sales drop by 38% as well. Those are big drops because if we make that investment of 6.3 billion for uh, all the various locks on the inland river system, and in fact, if we were to dredge the lower Mississippi River from Baton Rouge to uh, out to the Gulf of Mexico, five feet deeper to 50 feet, and, and all that together, we could see actually that employment would go up 20%, the contribution to GDP up 39%, and really the con output, the contribution to sales would increase 40%. What you really see is a very significant opportunity, and quite frankly, what we'd see is that our farm product volumes that would move on the river system would increase um, from 161 million tons, uh, increase 35% to 200 and uh, nearly 20 million tons that you would see moving on the inland river system. But the fact of the matter is, when we make no investment, and, and we fall behind, we could see that our costs are going to be much higher than what South America could do to land into Asia over the United States. And we'd see that we'd be 2 to 5% more expensive if we did nothing. But if we make the investment, we could see our costs, uh, landed costs, fall 4% from where they are today. And we could help stem the uh, or slow the tide of falling competitiveness with South America and maintain that going forward here. But it's very important because at the end of the day, uh, around the world, buyers are looking for the lowest cost and the best service they can get. And if they can't rely on an uh, infrastructure or transportation system and get the lowest price, they'll find the next person to do that. And we can tell you this much. We have a 40-some person team in South America that study this very closely. 
uh, that South America is picking up the pace and making the investment to be a supplier to the world and being competitive to do it. Wow. Um, Ken, you bring lots of information to us. The statistical backup uh, is pretty amazing. IHS market has been known for that for years. Uh, certainly the Journal of Commerce has uh, talked about it forever and ever. The reality is that infrastructure matters and transportation really is a huge opportunity uh, for us in not only the domestic market, but certainly the global markets. Um, and it is international markets that uh, feed the world and uh, so obviously very, very important. Um, you guys are playing a, an important role and it is appreciated. Uh, so let me simply say thank you to Ken Erickson. Um, Ken, is there a, a way that our members, uh, Traffic Club of Chicago members, can uh, connect with you, can contact you, should they have questions that go a little deeper? Yeah, they certainly can. I'll give out my uh, phone number, which is 901-766-4463. But it can also go to, um, on, the, on our transportation side, we have a number of offerings. We have a transportation channel that covers all the modes of transportation. We look at the flow of commodities. We look at the uh, shoreside infrastructure and, and the floating, uh, rolling assets that need to be uh, available for the marketplace. But we publish two uh, three reports annually, a barge fleet profile, which is a survey of the barge operators and how many barges they had in operation by year of build. We also have a barge commodity profile report, which is really a compendium, a companion report to the barge fleet profile, which we show the volumes moving by barge type. We develop our own supply and demand tables to buy barge type, and then we put together some barge pressure indices, essentially capacity utilization levels. And both those reports are available through bargefleet.com. And we also have a uh, semi-annual inland fact book, which is a five-year outlook of uh, the barge market, but we look at the drivers for demand. We look at what's the retirement schedule for the fleet look like, what does new builds need to be, uh, and we put that together to give a perspective and view. But we also address the towboat market, look at the fleets around there, the types of engines being deployed, and any kind of regulations impacting the industry. And again, all of that's available through bargefleet.com. And my contact information is there along with my email address as well. But we also have a couple of uh, events coming up. We co-host an annual waterway symposium. It'll be at a 16th annual event this year. We have the leaders of the industry uh, together in one room. Uh, last year, I believe we were, in, yeah, we were in Chicago last year. This year we'll be in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we'll be there November 6th to the 8th. And we can get information from bargefleet.com. And of course, as you referenced, Journal of Commerce, uh, a great company, a sister company of ours, they'll have the annual uh, Inland Distribution Conference, October 21st, 23rd, in Chicago, Illinois. That'll be a great venue for uh, the Traffic Club to participate and engage with, uh, them, with one another and uh, others from the industry or from around the world. Ken, we're appreciative for your insight and uh, grateful for your time today. Um, we will be encouraging our members to participate at the uh, Inland Distribution Conference. In fact, we have a special rate that is being offered to Traffic Club of Chicago members. So um, again, thank you. 
for what you've done uh, for us through this podcast. Uh, your information is uh, great to have, and we are um, looking forward to hearing more uh, as we should know more going forward. So thank you. Well, thank you, Dennis, and I uh, welcome this opportunity and look for future uh, uh, times with you in the, in the, in the future.